Hard to have any secrets when you're wearing a microphone, amen? <laughs> we have some special friends with us today that we brought, uh, Julie and Shane Paget. Uh, they spent last night with us. They'll spend uh, the night tonight with us. And it was fun to have them. Uh, they knew I was going to be speaking here, and so we had an opportunity to brag on y'all quite a bit. Uh, from the last time we were here, we told them, they sing out, they sing with joy. Um, we told them how friendly y'all were, and y'all haven't let us down. Um, you know, you, you sing with joy in your hearts, and you're smiling, and it's just terrific. It's a great, especially for Lindsay and I, it is a great worship experience. So let me just thank you for that, and thank you for having me back. That's kind of amazing in and of itself. I do want you to turn this morning in your Bibles or on your cell phone or whatever you're using to Luke chapter 15. It's a very familiar passage. Most of you know it already. And while you're finding that, let me tell you that we've got the 4th of July coming up. But last Monday, not even, well, a, a week ago, uh, Lindsay and I celebrated our 47th wedding anniversary. Yes, I know that was all directed to Lindsay. She does deserve that uh, applause. But I thought I would just fill you all in with a little tip on how to have a long and happy marriage. Two rules. Number one, I don't try to run her life. Number two, I don't try to run my life. <laughs> Now let me call your attention to Luke chapter 15. As you read through the New Testament, aren't you intrigued by the way Jesus navigated life? And Jesus loved those who weren't like him. And those who weren't like him loved him. And we see it in verse 1. Jesus is hanging out with tax gatherers and sinners. And there was a group of spiritual leaders standing nearby. There was a group of Pharisees and scribes. And they were aggravated that Jesus felt so comfortable with those people that they hated. And they grumbled about it. He receives sinners. He eats with sinners. And let me just pause for a moment and tell you that one of my favorite descriptions of Jesus in all of the New Testament is that he was the friend of sinners. Well, Jesus picked up on the grumbling because in their minds, they mattered to God, but sinners didn't. In their minds, God hated tax gatherers, and sinners. And because Jesus was so chummy with the sinners, it was just another reason for them to reject Jesus and to reject his claims to be the Messiah. So Jesus tells a story. But in actuality, it's not one story. It's three. Back to back to back. It's the only time I know of where Jesus strings three parables together. 
almost like three points in a sermon to answer the one big question, who matters to God? Who really matters to God? Now, I want you to keep that on a back burner as we work our way through this parable that is actually three. And you know the stories. The first is the lost sheep, and then the lost coin, and then the lost son. And I want you to notice some common themes that we see. First, something of great value winds up missing in each story. And it really matters to someone. The sheep matters to the shepherd. The coin matters to the woman. The son matters to the father. Here's the second theme. That which is missing warrants an all-out search. The shepherd leaves the 99. The woman sweeps the house. And the father runs to the son. Third theme. Retrieval brings rejoicing. In the story of the sheep, when the shepherd finds the lost sheep, he says, friends and neighbors, rejoice with me. Interestingly, in the second parable, in the parable of the coin, when the woman finds the coin, she says the same thing. Friends and neighbors, rejoice with me. And then in the third story, the story of the son, the father says, kill the fatted calf, let's eat and celebrate. Sort of makes me think of the story of the kindergarten Sunday school teacher. She had been teaching on the prodigal son, Luke 15, for some time with her class. So she decided that she wanted to stop and uh, she wanted to find out how much they were taking in. Little kindergartners. And so she said, now boys and girls, when the prodigal came home, there was one, one who was not happy about his return. Not happy at all. Can any of you tell me who that was? Finally, a little fellow raised his hand and he said, the fatted calf. <laughs> well, let's adjust the microscope just a little bit. The ratio in the first parable is one out of 100. Then the ratio in the second parable is one out of 10. And then in the third parable, one out of two. A certain man had two sons, we read in verse 11. And the younger said, I'd like my inheritance now. It's perfectly legal, but not very loving. It was tantamount to him saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. Completely selfish and certainly rebellious. So the father divided his wealth between his sons, and the younger soon left. He travels to the big city where the lights are bright and life is fast. His pockets were full, and he thought the reservoir would never run dry. Later in this parable, the older brother accuses him of squandering his wealth on prostitutes. We actually don't see that in the text, although it is entirely possible. We do get the idea that he was going to party his brains out, and he does, until the reservoir runs dry. 
all is squandered. We have a proverb that we say that goes something like this. A, soon and his, a, a, a fool and his money soon part. That's not actually in the Bible. But what is in the Bible in Proverbs 23 says, money makes wings like an eagle and flies away. And it certainly did in the case of the prodigal. Now, the word prodigal is the opposite of frugal. I'll tell you an embarrassing story. I was uh, pastoring. I'd been pastoring a long time. I'd been to Dallas Seminary. And uh, we had a youth speaker come in and speak just to the youth. But I was in that meeting. I wanted to hear him. And uh, he's speaking on the prodigal son. And so he says, uh, anybody know what the word prodigal means? Pastor, do you know? I didn't know. <laughs> and it was very embarrassing. And, and I just sat there, uh, I, I, no. Prodigal is the opposite of frugal. It means wasteful. That's what the word prodigal means. And to compound the problem, a severe famine occurs. Food is scarce. And jobs even more so. He can't find work. He's hungry. He becomes a street person. He's sleeping under cardboard. He has a pungent stench about him. His clothes have become rags. He is unshaven and unkempt. He's in need of a dentist. His toenails are dark and beginning to curl. J.B. Phillips captures the meaning when he pins... He began to feel the pinch. But he finally lands a job. But it's with a pig farmer. Nothing could be more demeaning to a Jewish boy. He's lonely and he is depressed. And sin is having its payday. And it's like the old Baptist preacher used to say, sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you wanted to pay. He was seeking freedom, and all he found was bondage. Do you know anybody like that? Oh, man, they want to be free. But they never achieve it. Am I speaking to you this morning? Well, I observed someone like that. My wife's brother. He was exactly, to the day, one year younger than I am. And uh, somewhere early on, probably as far back as junior high or what we call middle school, he started dabbling with alcohol and drugs, and they got their claws in him, and he became addicted. And when he got to be 40 years old, he never could shake it. And he finally couldn't take it anymore, and he took his own life. I will bet you, uh, 
I will wager you, I, I will prophesy you <laughs> that if I were to have you raise your hands, some of you would raise your hands and say, yeah, I know somebody like that. I know somebody like that. Well, the prodigal finally arrives at a little creek where the swine are pinned, and he feeds them. And his own hunger pangs are so acute, he desires to eat their slop, to eat their pods. You know, I visited, when we lived in Kentucky, I visited at one time a pig farm. I don't know if you've ever seen one or been to one, but I can tell you this, and if you've been, you can testify, they're nasty and they're stinky. And I'm not talking about hundreds of pigs, I'm talking about thousands of pigs. Now, I like bacon like the next guy, I just prefer not to think about where it comes from. Well, here he is by the creek, the hogs are grunting and making a ruckus, but the prodigal really doesn't hear them. He's not there. Oh, he's standing there, but he's a million miles away. He's daydreaming. He's homesick. He's in despair. And his thoughts go something like this. I remember my dad and I remember how well he treated the hired hands. I remember my dad, I remember my father and how constant his generosity and his goodness for the hired hands was. Do you ever consider those things in your, your relationship with your heavenly father? Let me give you a verse that came to mind as I was preparing this. I think it fits like hand in glove. Listen to this. Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? You're right, Romans 2, verse 4. Boy, I'd like for you to meditate on that. The goodness of God leads you to repentance. Verse 16, no one was giving him anything, not even the time of day. Verse 17, it says that the prodigal comes to his senses, which is a most interesting verse because it indicates that sin, hear me, sin is insanity. It makes no sense, absolutely no sense in light of how good our Heavenly Father is. He remembered how the hired men on his father's place had plenty to eat, and here he is starving to death. Verses 18 and 19, he rehearses his plan, what he's going to do. He rehearses his confession. And so he says to himself, I will get up, I will go, I will say, I will get up, I will go to my father, I will say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. Now, 
For you Solomons out there, you Bible scholars out there, you know that the Bible meaning of the word repentance is to change your mind. That is what the Greek word means. And that's exactly what the prodigal is doing here. He's changing his mind. He's repenting. He's rehearsed what he's going to say. And he gets up and he goes to his father, verse 20. And while he is still a long way off, his father sees him. His father's out in the field. Can you see it? The wheat's about chest high. Fields all around. But he's in a field that he's plowing. And every so often he stops and he wipes the sweat off of his brow and he scans the horizon as he has done every day since his son left. And then one day he sees him. He's not mistaken for one of the other workers that's out in the fields or the elder son who is also out in the fields working. He can tell by his gait that it, it, it's his son and he immediately drops everything and he begins to run through the wheat, fighting his way through the wheat, running as fast as he can and as hard as he can and notice where he's running. He's running toward his son and when he gets to his son, he grabs him. Spurgeon says he saw who it was. He saw where he had come from. He saw the swineherd's dress. He saw the filth upon his hands and feet. He saw his rags. He saw his penitent look. He saw what he had been. He saw what he was. He saw what he would soon be. And then the Bible says he felt compassion for him as only a father could. My brother told me the other day, I was talking to him about preaching to you folks on this passage. And he said he went and he read it that night. And he said he wept like a baby. I was preaching in North Georgia several years ago now. I was candidating at a church there just south of Chattanooga. It was in Georgia, but it was called Chattanooga Valley. And I was preaching there, and my brother and father drove up from Atlanta to hear me. And later, my brother told me that my dad sat there, my dad who's always had compassion on me. And by the way, there's something special about the bond between a father who loves his son and a son who loves his father. My dad's been gone for some time now, and I still think, well, I, I wish I could tell dad about that. My brother said my dad sat there when I was preaching and wept. The sermon was that bad. No, no, no. My dad was proud of me. He had compassion on me. He loved me. Well, the father saw his son, and he runs to him, and he embraces him, and he kisses him. Wearsby says that in the East, old men don't run. Well, I was thinking about that. Old men don't run in the West either. 
I mean, occasionally, if you're at the airport, you might see it. You know, if a guy's late for his flight, you might see an old man trying to make his way as fast as he can uh, down to his gate. I mean, let's face it. Let, let, let's say you're coming to church on a Sunday morning and you're pulling in the parking lot and, and you see Larry Honey uh, burst out the front doors and the best he can, he's running across the parking lot and then down the sidewalk, down the street out here. You're going to think to yourself, something's up. You might even take off after him to see what's going on to make sure he's okay. I mean, at least he had his clothes on. I mean, you know, he's running down. You know something's up. Well, that's what happened in the story. The father's in the field. He spots his son when he was a long way off, but he recognized him. He'd been looking for him. He'd been searching for him. He'd been waiting for him. And when he finally sees him, he takes his robes and he pulls them up between his legs like a like a diaper, like a pair of shorts, and he tucks it in his belt so that it frees his legs up so that he can run. And notice where he's running. He's running toward his son. And the father embraces the son and he kisses him. And the prodigal starts his confession only to be interrupted because, as Spurgeon says, the eyes of mercy are quicker than the eyes of repentance. And there they are standing in a field and his father yells to the field hands who have gathered to see what was up. And he says, quickly, quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and kill the fatted calf. Let's eat. Let's celebrate. My son who was dead is now alive. My son who was lost is now found. And the Bible tells us they began to be merry. They began to be merry. I want to show you something I think, again, is extremely interesting. Let your eyes go back to verse 10. Let your eyes go back to verse 10. This is at the end of the second parable. The first was the sheep. The second was the lost coin. And Jesus throws this in there. Notice what it says in verse 10. In the same way I tell you, you know, they're, they're rejoicing. She's saying, come rejoice with me. I found the coin. Jesus says, in the same way I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Look at it again. Notice where the joy is. It's not the angels that are rejoicing. The, the joy, the rejoicing is in the presence of the angels. This is God's own joy. And J.I. Packer says this, God saves us not only for His glory, but also for His gladness. Well, in case you missed it, as we read these stories, the father represents God the father, the prodigal represents the sinner, and the older son 
represents the Pharisees and scribes. Now, in the translation that I'm using, 13 times the Father is referred to in this parable. You might count them up when you go home this afternoon and see how, how many times he's referred to in the passage, that, in the translation that you're using, but 13 times in the translation I'm using, which tells us what? Well, it tells us that the parable is clearly, clearly about the Father and His grace. And here we see Him running. Might I be quick to add, what a God we have. What a God we serve. It's the only time in the Bible where God is pictured as running. And notice where He is running. He is running after the poor lost sinner. Doesn't that just do something? You know, I was talking to my son about this passage. I, 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 I love to talk over what I'm going to speak on. It just gets me more immersed in the passage, in the setting. I talk to my wife. I talk to my brother. I talk to my son about this. He's a professor at Midwestern Seminary in Kansas City. They were overseas for nearly 15 years and had to come home because of some health concerns of our grandson. But uh, now he's teaching, and he told me, uh, he said, Dad, let me tell you a little story. And I said, all right. He said that uh, when he was in uh, Bangladesh, or they pronounce it Bangladesh, uh, the country's about uh, 90, 98% Muslim. He said, I was going to do some evangelism, and so I took my Bible, and I went to the park. Presumably, he was sitting at a picnic table of some sort, and there was a young man there, and he struck up a conversation with the young man and got to the point where he took his Bible, and he slid it across the table. It was open to this passage so that the young man, the young Bengali, could read it, and he did. And my son said, I gave no explanation, no exposition. And as he read it, I watched his face. Tears welled up in his eyes, spilled over onto his cheeks, and ran down his face. And this is what he said about this passage. If I behave like this, my father would never accept me back. What a God we have. What a God we serve. You know, the story could have ended here. But Jesus puts a bow on it. Because, remember, we're trying to answer the question, who really matters to God? So let me just read a few verses for you, and you can follow with me. I'll begin in verse 25. I'm going to read down through verse 30. Now his older son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. Did y'all get that, Baptist? <laughs> just want to make sure you didn't miss that. You know I candidated at a church once, and they asked me if Baptists could dance. I said, well, some can, some can't. 
And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things might be. I mean, he could hear it. He could hear the commotion going on inside. And he said to him, the servant said, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. Now look at the reaction of the older brother. He became angry. He was not willing to go in. And his father came out and he began entreating him. But he answered and said to his father, look, can, can you imagine? You know, in the Greek, there are no punctuation marks, but the translators put one in the translation. Look! Exclamation point. For so many years I have been serving you, and I have never neglected a command of yours, and yet you have never given me a kid that I might be merry with my friends. And when this son of yours, not even my brother, but when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with harlots, you, filled the fat, you killed the fatted calf for him. Go back to verse 28. It says the father began entreating him. That's the imperfect tense, and it indicates he kept on and kept on and kept on and kept on pleading, begging, beseeching him to come in. And then look, if you will, at verse 31. The father says to him, my child, what you're looking for is the gentleness and the tenderness that the father expresses to the son who's just yelled at him. My child, my child, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to be merry and rejoice. For this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live. He was lost and has been found. Now wait. Wait, let's just tap the brakes. Could it be... We're answering the question, who really matters to God? Could it possibly be that even the Pharisees, even the scribes, were important to God? You know, it occurred to me just the other day, Nicodemus, whom you were all familiar with from John chapter 3, who came to see Jesus under cover of darkness, was a Pharisee. Usually, Jesus didn't have too many good things to say about Pharisees. But could it be that even the Pharisees are important to God? I say again, what a God we have. What a God we serve. But even if the older son wouldn't respond to the father's pleading, we still have to be merry and rejoice because my son who was dead is now alive. He was lost and now he's found. So I think we clearly have the answer to our question. Who really matters to God? Lost people matter to God. Who really matters to God? All lost people matter to God. 
you can get the obvious application. They need to matter to us. I've got two or three little stories. I'll make them short, quick, sweet, painless, and we'll, uh, we'll pray after that. I just want to brag on my wife for a minute because rarely in your experience as a Christian have you ever met anyone who is as much an evangelist as she is. I mean, she's been flying back and forth to Florida almost once a month for the last three years because we have a grandson who lives there. As a matter of fact, we're flying out tomorrow to go down for his fourth birthday party. He's a delightful child. She does not sit down on a plane and start reading a Joel Rosenberg book. She sits down on the plane and she introduces herself immediately and she catches them before they put their ear pods in and before they tune her out and she begins to talk to them about the Lord on one particular occasion, and I won't go into great detail because I know we're pressed for time, sort of like the Egyptian mummy. Um, she talked to two mammoth human beings, two African-American young men who were playing football at North Texas State. And uh, the next thing I know, after I pick her up from the airport, uh, the following Sunday, we pick up these two giants and we take them to church with us. They hear the gospel in church. Then we took them to Texas Roadhouse afterwards and we sat there in Texas Roadhouse and after we'd uh, softened them up with a couple of big steaks, both of them bowed their heads at the table and prayed out loud to receive Christ. You know, if I were a good-looking white woman, I'd have been a little hesitant. I'm just being honest. I'd be a little hesitant to talk to any man, regardless of what race he was. She wasn't, didn't stop her in the least, and they trusted Christ. Another quick story. Uh, shortly after I became the chaplain at Dallas Seminary, we had to fly back to Georgia because someone had passed away, um, and I had to go back and do the funeral. Was it that or was it a wedding? Or what's the difference? <laughs> either way, either way, we, 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 go to, um, we go to the ticket counter, and we're in line, and the lady behind the counter I think the word is gothic. She had black fingernails. She was all tatted up. Uh, black makeup on her eyes. Um, black hair. I, I'm just trying to describe her to you. I'm not judging her. I, I think the term is gothic. But the thing about it was she was rude. She was rude to the people who were, who were coming up to the counter, you know, getting their gate and putting their luggage on, you know, to get weighed. You've done it before. Um, I wondered to myself, I wonder if American Airlines knows about this young lady. Well, then I see my wife start fishing around in her purse for a gospel tract. 
and she always carries them. And I'm just thinking, oh, I don't think anything good is going to come from this. And I sort of started wandering off. Just, you know, I just, I didn't really want to be there for the train wreck married to a grease fire. And I just didn't want to see the result. Anyway, uh, we get up to the counter and I'm within earshot and we get our luggage weighed and we get our tickets and our gate assignment. <laughs> and my wife pulls out a tract and as sweetly as only she can do it, she says, you know, would you mind reading this for me? It's really got a great message and I think you'll enjoy it. And our son did the tract. He wrote all the illustrations and and uh, the girl looked at it, and I'm not kidding. She looked at the track, thumbed through a couple pages, burst out crying, and said to Lindsay, Oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. I'm having the worst day. I'm having a terrible day. I really needed something like this. I promise you I'll read it. Thank you, thank you. And Lindsay said, It just explains how you can go to heaven, and heaven is a gift because we can't be perfect enough, you have to trust Jesus and he gives you his perfection. He takes your sins, he gives you his perfection. And she said, oh, that's good news. I mean, she just stood there and gave her the gospel in front of God and American Airlines and everybody. It was really something to behold. And it taught me a lesson, not to get all tatted up and, no, that's not what it taught me. <laughs> I do want to quote, uh, close with a, a final quote by Spurgeon, and listen carefully to this. Spurgeon said, obviously I like Spurgeon. Spurgeon said, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay if hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let not one go unwarned or unprayed for. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the privilege of being able to be here and the privilege of being able to speak to these dear people whom I've really grown to love, although I don't know them that well yet. Uh, we do want to be sure to pray for Bob as he's away and uh, give him great grace, traveling mercies, uh, power when he speaks. And Father, right now, I pray for anyone here who may not know you as Savior. I kind of be surprised, but it's entirely possible. And I pray that if we do have someone like that, that they would put their trust in you this morning, understanding that we cannot be perfect because we can't earn it. We've already blown it. So help us to give our sins to you and in exchange get your perfection so we can go to heaven. Thank you that you died to pay for our sins and that you were buried and that you rose again. And we want to thank you that all people matter to God, 
And all lost people matter to God. Therefore, they need to matter to us. Thank you, Lord, for this passage. And we thank you that we love you because you first loved us. In Jesus' name, amen.